All right. Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. We're glad you could be here. We're continuing our series that we've called East of Eden, and we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And today we're in Ecclesiastes 11. So we're almost done with the book. Just a couple more to go. Ecclesiastes 11. So if you have your Bible, why don't you uh, turn there? Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It's kind of toward the middle-ish of your Bible. It's after the Psalms. Ecclesiastes 11. Carpe diem is Latin for seize the day. You might know that. It might be cliche for you. But it actually comes from a Roman poem. Okay, the Roman poet Horace, he penned these words in a well-known, I guess, these well-known words, but not a well-known poem, over 2,000 years ago in his book of poems called The Odes. So you can look it up. He has a poem about seizing the day. But I'm pretty sure most of us, even though we've heard that phrase, we've heard that term, we've maybe even said it ourselves, carpe diem, I'm going to seize the day. I'm pretty sure most of us are not big Horace fans. We haven't memorized his poetry. We haven't put his words to music. We don't sing it in our cars. We don't know anything about Horace. You probably heard about carpe diem from someone else, maybe our parents, maybe a teacher in school, or maybe like me from a movie. So I think the earliest memory that I have of Carpe Diem is from the film Dead Poets Society. Now, I don't know if you've seen this movie. I've been referencing movies more than normal, and after Ecclesiastes, I'm going to get away from it. But the film takes place at an all-boys prep school in New England, and on the first day of classes in the year 1959, so it takes place a while back, a group of young men are unexpectedly captivated by the unorthodox teaching style of the new English teacher. His name is John Keating. And he's played by Robin Williams in the film. And one of the most well-known scenes, earlier on in the movie, what happens is Keating wants to impart a lesson to his students. And he urges his students to make their lives extraordinary. That's the quote. He says, carpe diem, seize the day. We are all food for worms, lads. Everyone in this room, he says, every single person will one day breathe their last. And he has them walk the halls of their all-boys prep school. He tells them to look at the pictures of the classes gone by over the years, over the decades. And they see pictures from 60 years past. And he says, look at the faces of those students. They're the same age as you in those pictures. They were full of dreams and promise. Their whole lives were ahead of them. And yet, if you think about them now... All of them are old. They're long past their prime. Some of them are already worm food. Life goes fast. So the lesson was seize the day. Seize it. Life goes fast. Seize it. The preacher of Ecclesiastes has compared the things so many people live for in this world. It's a feel good, living for that next vacation or for the weekend where you can just relax and unwind, uh, accomplishing much, wanting to be successful, wanting to make a lot of money and have a lot of things. He compares all of that, all the things that are most of our goals and most of our dreams and aspirations to a puff of smoke, to a wisp of vapor. In ancient Hebrew, he uses the word hevel. And translated in our Bibles, in the ESV, it's translated as vanity. 
See, we have people dedicating their entire lives to trying to learn something, trying to be the most learned person, trying to reach enlightenment, trying to get some sort of inner peace by looking inside. We have people who merely tolerate most of their existence, just waiting for uh, retirement, just hoping that after I toil and do all these things that I hate, that I'll be able to enjoy life finally when I don't have responsibility. We have people who are literally working themselves to death, right? neglecting everything else, their health, their families. Why? Because they need to be successful. They need to have more money. They need the status that comes with all of that. And the preacher says, look around, people live for this, and yet I have seen through my own experience and observation that this is all vanity. It's all hevel. It's the breath of warm air you exhale on a cold day. And we all saw that when we got out of our cars today, when we came to church. And yet, where is that breath now? It's long gone. There is no meaning in these things, not ultimately. These are not the way to live the one life that God has given us to live under the sun. Now, if you've been here, some of you might be new, so you're like, what is this series about? But if you've been here, you're probably asking, what is this series about? I'm not saying that it's wrong to go on vacation or to study or learn or to make money even or to work hard or to like what you do. It's just not what Ecclesiastes is about. It's about much more than these things. And if you've been here from the first day of Ecclesiastes, you know this. Ecclesiastes is less about the world under the sun, actually, and it's about us. It's about who we are. See, it's about changing you. We all live under the sun. We are all dust, and to dust we shall return. One day, every single person in this room will breathe their last. Someday, we will all be food for worms. We all have these hourglass lives, and the sand is just running and will run until completion, and then there is judgment. But the preacher is saying, in the meantime, as you are breathing now, as you are living, as you are dust that has the breath of life in you, the preacher is saying it's possible to live for more. That there is a path towards meaning and purpose and even joy against all odds. A path paved by the wisdom of this book. And yet, how has it been for you? We talked about a lot of things in Ecclesiastes. It's a challenging book. I think it's interesting. It's different than most books in the Bible. But if you've been here, how has it been for you? It's not that easy to conform our lives to the contours of this book. It's not that easy for us who have been running in one direction all out as hard as we can to suddenly course correct and to follow the path that the preacher of Ecclesiastes lays out for us to put off old habits, our natural way of thinking, to stop obsessing over what we have and don't have. A lot of us, we still feel as aimless as before, as unhappy as ever, regretful of the past and anxious about our uncertain futures. So as the preacher picks up the pace, as he wants to carry us along to the conclusion, toward the finish line, just one chapter left after this, he gives us surprisingly simple, surprisingly practical and actually surprisingly positive direction. This is one of the most unexpected sections of Ecclesiastes, and honestly, it's one of my favorites, so hopefully I can do it justice. But basically, this is your life. This is how you seize it, Ecclesiastes 11. And I told you to open your Bibles, and I didn't do it myself, so give me one second here. Ecclesiastes 11. 
verses 1 through 6. Let me read and then I'll pray and then we'll get into it. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We know, God, that your word is life. Your word is truth. Your word is your breath written down for us. We know that your word has the power to give us faith. And there's so many things we don't know, God. So many things we don't understand. So many things we don't have control over. But I pray, God, that even as this realization humbles up, humbles us, and I pray that it will, God, I pray also that it will lead us to you. And as we sang, Father, there is no other solid ground except for Christ. So, God, I pray for every single person in this room, whether they're listening right now or not, whether they're praying along with me or not, whether this is their first time or they've been with us since the beginning. God, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. Ecclesiastes is meant to change our lives, God, and I pray that it will. I pray that you will use these six verses to that end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes is known to be a difficult book. We said that. Some call it a depressing book or even a dangerous book. But when you actually read it, Ecclesiastes is a beautiful book. The author Tom Wolfe called Ecclesiastes the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. And we see that here in this passage. These are not generic platitudes where you read it and you say, oh yeah, I've heard this a million times. This is poetry. And maybe nowhere else in this book of poetry do poetry, eloquence, and truth collide as seamlessly as in this section right here. Now, there are repeated themes in this section for sure. He, he's summing up things that he's talked about already. But here in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, the ideas seem fresh. He has a new spin on things. He's adding a new wrinkle to his argument. The uncertainty of life, he's talked about this, but here he explores uh, the real implications of that. And he gives us some rules for life. And there are three in here, and these will be our points for today. First, go for broke. Second, embrace what is. And third, do what you can and don't worry about what you can't. Do what you can and don't worry about what you can't. Let's get into it. First, go for broke. Go for broke. That is, you need to give to get. So give it all you got. Look at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Really self-explanatory. They're probably the easiest verse. I'm just kidding. 
It is a little funny, though. If you look at the ESV, if you had the ESV like me, normally what the ESV or a lot of English Bibles do is they summarize the passage for you at the top, right? So in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, it was very helpful, right? This section is about the vanity of wisdom. Okay, and then this section over here is about the vanity of self-indulgence. And then this is about the vanity of work, etc. But for here at chapter 11, what is the summary here? Cast your bread upon the waters. Not really much of a summary. So either they figured it was so easy that we would just get it, no point in, in, in treating us like children, or more likely, it was pretty hard to summarize. So they just kind of gave up and said, just read it. Okay, it says, cast your bread upon the waters, you're good. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? I'm sure we're thinking different things, feeding the ducks, something like that. Let's break it down. Let's do a little exegesis here. The word for cast here in Hebrew is the word shalah. Okay, shalah. It can be translated different ways into English. It can be used in different ways. It it can talk about laying aside whatever hinders you when you're pressing forward toward a goal. So it's kind of a New Testament idea there, right? Laying aside every way to press on toward what is ahead. It can be used of giving a gift. It can be used of abandoning something and just leaving it behind. But all this to say, the image is of actually just throwing some bread into a body of water and walking away, leaving that bread behind. And it's an imperative in the original text. We're told we're we're commanded actually to throw bread, to throw our bread into the water. Now, it's not about just feeding the birds. Okay, the reason given right here in the text, in the second part of verse 1, The reason given is that we will find it after many days. Okay, so throw your bread, and then you will find it after many days. Now, if you take this literally, it's not its not going to happen. You take a loaf of wonder bread, and you throw it into water. It's going to get soggy. It's going to disintegrate. If you come back after many days, even just a few days, you're not going to find that same loaf of bread. Okay, and it was the same back then as well. So what is he talking about? Some commentators have argued that this is actually a metaphor for business. Okay, they're like, think about it, okay? Well, what do you trade with in those days? You ship bread or you ship grain, it's food. And that actually makes a lot of sense. They argue that the preacher's point is you need to give in order to get. You need to invest. You need to take risks if you're going to make anything of yourself in business. And we see this in King Solomon's life. If you read about the preacher in the book of First Kings and Second Kings, or well, mostly First Kings, the identity of the preacher of Ecclesiastes is this king. He alone of all the kings of Israel engaged in overseas trade, and the kingdom prospered because of this. He was willing to trade in order to get more Back. So this could be talking about the risks of taking advantage of trade opportunities. Don't be afraid to pull the trigger. You miss 100% of the shots you don't make. Whoever said that? There is a risk here. It won't lead to a return, at least not right away. You might have to wait many days. But maybe what he's saying is ship your bread, and then after you know a few months, you'll get back bread, metaphorically. And this does make sense. But look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, so right after this, he gives another imperative, another command, and then another reason. And the imperative, the command is to give. Okay, to give your portion. Uh, The word in Hebrew for give here is the word 10. Okay, not the English number 10, but the Hebrew word 10. And it means to hand down, okay, or to surrender even. Or as it's translated here, to give. 
And some argue that this is also about business, that they're kind of business-minded. They're thinking along the same track, and they're saying, you're supposed to actually divide your portion. Okay, so you have your portion of stuff. You divide it among seven or eight things. You have seven or eight investments. You diversify your portfolio, to put it in modern terms. And the reason would seem to justify this. Just in case a disaster happens, you don't know what's going to happen. Make sure that you don't have all your eggs in one basket. But think about what these words usually mean. There's a little bit of exegetical gymnastics to kind of get to this point. Shalah, abandon, leave behind, drop it so that you can pursue your goal. Ten, surrender, hand down, give. Think about the preacher. Does he sound like someone so far in Ecclesiastes who's going to start giving practical business advice so that you could get rich? Doesn't seem like it. I mean, he did say in the last section, money answers everything. But let me tell you a story. The story is actually from the rabbinic teachings, okay, the Hebrew commentary on this Old Testament passage. It's not from the Bible. Okay, I just want to put it out there. It's not a biblical story. It's just from the rabbis. This was the way that they saw this text and how they illustrated it, okay? The story goes that when King Solomon was building the temple of God, he needed certain materials, He needed gold, he needed wood, and there was one material, they don't say which, that he couldn't get in Israel, so he needed to trade for it. And there was one kingdom, one land, there's one place where this material was, so he went to that kingdom where he sent delegates, and he said, how much for that material? I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon was rich, he was filthy rich. And the king said, it's not for sale. Not for you. They didn't really like Israel. Not a lot has changed over the years, but they didn't like Israel. They didn't want to give that material to him. So he sent more delegates. He said, we'll trade then. I have a lot of stuff that you don't have. I can give you gold. I can give you like apes, whatever random things that Solomon had. And they said, no, thanks. We're not open for discussion. So finally, King Solomon said, I'm going to go there myself. Okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to go there. I'm going to make it happen. He's the wisest man who ever lived. So he goes himself. And he meets the king, and the king still says to his face, no, nothing you have interests me. I'm not going to trade. I'm not going to help you. So Solomon prepared to return home empty-handed. He placed the matter in God's hands since he tried his best, and still nothing. God would have to provide a miracle because it's not going to happen. But right when he was about to depart, a servant came up to Solomon and said, wait a minute, the king actually wants to talk to you. Something came up. So Solomon says, okay, I don't know what this is. So he goes to meet with the king, and the king says, you know what? I'll give you as much as you need. How much do you need? And then he says, X amount. And he says, okay, well, how much do you want for it? Which of our trades are we going to do? He says, nothing. You can have it for free. And Solomon is thinking, what? Like, wh- how did this happen? What, what? So he asked him, um, so uh, why are you doing this? Like, I'm just wondering, like, why you changed your mind? And what the king said was, um, my son gave me this. And he produces this blanket. And on the blanket, there is the symbol of a star, okay? The symbol uh, is the symbol of David's house, okay? So this is the rabbinic teachings. I don't know if that was even in, you know what the star of David looks like. I don't know if that was in existence during Solomon's time, but it's, it's a story, okay? And he said, is this yours? And Solomon's like, well, it's not mine personally, but yeah, it is. This is my father's sign. This is Israel. And the king said, a while back, we had been at war with another kingdom, and my son was captured. Uh, we thought he was dead. Right? He was getting tortured and all these things, but he managed to escape. 
And he got out into the wilderness. He was able to run away from that kingdom. But in the wilderness, how are you going to survive? But he managed to find a little stream, a little oasis in the desert. And even though the water helped him, there was no food. But then he looked near the stream and there was wrapped up in this blanket, this Israelite blanket, a loaf of bread. And he ate it and he survived and he made it back. And after you came and I rejected you, he came up to talk to me and he told me about the blanket. And that's why I changed my mind. And see, the thing is, it was customary in those days that if you're traveling and you reached an oasis in the desert, if you're a traveler, you're on your donkey, whatever it might be, you should leave food, a little extra food behind at that stream or under that tree for the next traveler. It was kind of an ancient pay it forward kind of thing. You leave it behind knowing that one day someone else might be in need just like you might be in need one day. The king's son had shown him the blanket, told him the story. That's why the king changed his mind, because Israel had already blessed their family. So he decided that he would return the favor. Now, again, it's not a biblical story, but it illustrates how this passage would have been interpreted, I believe. This passage is not about business. Even though there might be some applicable parts about that, really what it's about is it's about paying it forward. This is about generosity. Last week, we did cover Ecclesiastes 10:19. It says, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers everything. It's part and parcel of wisdom to be careful and responsible and a good steward of your money. Work hard, right? Save so that you can be okay during a rainy day. Don't overspend. And some of us need that wisdom because we are a little foolish when it comes to our money. We're not able to bless others. We're more of a burden on them. But some of us might have heard that last week and thought, yeah, of course, I need to save. I I need more money. I need to be secure. I need to have comforts. I already do that. In fact, I think about it all the time. I I diversify my portfolio. I I have money in in stocks, and then I have money in this index fund, and then I have some cryptocurrency because I'm kind of wild like that. I mean, we think we're doing what we need to do, and you are doing what you need to do. It is good to be wise. It is good to diversify your portfolio or whatever that might be. But here's the question. To what end are you doing that? Why are you saving so much? What is all that money for? Solomon is saying here in verses 1 and 2 that hoarding for for oneself, hoarding for oneself, hoarding for me isn't wisdom either. See, what does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? It means to give, to pay it for, to give it away, to abandon it. It's not about wasting it. It's not about spending. It's not about irresponsibility or taking risks and gambling or blowing through everything on wild living like the prodigal son. This is about putting your money out there for the sake of other people. Generosity. This is about giving when you're not sure if it's necessarily going to be a good investment, if the ROI is unclear or maybe even not that great. The preacher says, after many days, you will get it back. But the truth is, it might not be when or what you think. And even if you think about the investment angle on verse 1, right? Throwing a loaf of bread in water and then getting back a soggy loaf a few weeks later, that's not a good investment, right? Even considering interest. It's not about what you get back. It's about what you give. This is the path to joy. And here, there is no apparent contradiction 
with the rest of Scripture. Like so many passages in Ecclesiastes. So many times we read something, we say, that doesn't sound right. But here, this actually fits in right with what the New Testament says again and again and again. What did our Lord say? Acts 20.35, it is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing is in the giving. And understand the blessing here is not material blessing necessarily. This is not the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Give some money so that you can get rich. This is not about trade. This is not about your bottom line. That's still a sort of hoarding. That's still believing that the true blessing on the far side is in the receiving. Giving's nice, but only if I can receive in the end. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The blessing is in the giving. The blessing is in becoming a different person, a person who is not tied or a slave to the things that you own. The things we own end up owning us. Have you ever heard that before? When you're free to just cast your bread upon the waters, then you're free of the shackles to that bread and what it represents. You want to be a person who can enjoy the things that God gives. You want to be the kind of person who isn't crushed when material things don't go the way that you want. You want to be the kind of person who knows that life is about more than possessions and that the best is in the future. The best is yet to come for every single Christian. The blessing is in the giving. So give, verse 2, a portion to seven or eight. Spread your wealth. Bless a lot of people. And in doing so, bless yourself. Why? Because you don't know what's going to happen. That's why he says, you don't know what disaster is going to befall you. Just a few months ago, we preached the rich fool. Okay, If you look on our YouTube, it's like the most popular sermon we ever preached because Vin did it, and he's the most popular guy. But it's a good sermon, okay? It's a good passage, obviously. The rich fool was so wise, quote-unquote, with his money. He stored up way more than he needed. He made good investments. He built even bigger barns for his provisions. He had his 401k, his Roth. He had index funds, some money in CDs, gold. He had all these things, Bitcoin, cash under his mattress. And he was going to retire and enjoy it all without a care in the world. And that very night, his life was required of him. And God doesn't call him wise. He doesn't say, well, good job, earning all that money, God actually calls him a fool. Can you imagine being called a fool by God? It's because he didn't do anything with it while he had it. So be generous with your possessions. Open up your house to others. Give rides to people who need it. Take your family out to dinner. It's not just about just giving it away, but it's about other people. Support a missionary. Buy a birthday gift for a friend. Support a child in need overseas. The blessing isn't so much in the object, it's in the act of giving. Because you can't keep this stuff anyway. Jim Elliott, the missionary, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's right in step with Ecclesiastes. Cast your bread upon the waters because that bread's going to go bad. Give, go for broke. And the reason I called it this, it's actually an old Hawaiian saying. It talks about risking what you have so that you can gain something bigger. 
Okay, now they would use it for different things, gambling, right? Go all in so that you could win the jackpot. But whatever it might be, whether it's the jackpot or victory or success, go for broke means that you give up what you have for something else. So go for broke when it comes to blessing. And the blessing that comes from God, not earthly blessing. I'm not saying you have to sell everything today and give it all away. But what I am saying is you need to think about what you have in a different way. It's not yours to keep. Your stuff, all the things that you, you're trying to, to protect and to hoard, it's like bread. It'll go bad. It'll grow mold if you just hold it. It's like the manna that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness. He said, gather as much as you need for today. Don't gather any more. They gathered more and it went bad. It had worms in it. See, if you hoard what you have and you don't share it, if you hoard your life, it's not just about money. If you hoard your life and don't share it, then it's going to go bad. So go for broke today because you do not know what tomorrow might bring. Think about how you could steward this one life you have. This is the path to joy where you can hold your things loosely and you could use them to bless others and in doing so bless yourselves. Second point, embrace what is. So go for broke. Just let things go. Second, embrace what is. If you want to seize the day, you have to choose today or yesterday. Uh, you have to choose today over yesterday and even over tomorrow. You got to be focused on the moment, in other words. In the Odyssey, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have had to read this in school or something, but in the Odyssey, it's like an old Greek poem. Homer wrote it. Odysseus, the, the plot is Odysseus is trying to get back home from the Trojan War. It's a sequel to the Iliad. But because he angered the gods or some of them, he has a really tough time getting back. And that's what the whole story is about. All these different obstacles he has to face and, and get past just to get home to his family. And there's this one part where he's sailing through this narrow channel. And the danger is on both sides, there is certain death. Okay, there are two monsters on either side. So on the one hand, there is Scylla. And on the other hand, there is Charybdis. Scylla is a six-headed monster that will just, like, bite you and kill you or whatever. Charybdis is a whirlpool that will suck you down to the bottom of the sea. So if you sail too close on one side, you die because of Scylla. If you sail too close on the other side, you die because of Charybdis. So you got to sail through the center if you want to make it to where you want to go. Now, why do I bring this up? Look at verse 3. It's not going to be apparent right away, so hold that thought. Okay, think about the monster. It's verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. It's so obvious, it's almost insulting. If a tree falls, there it is. If clouds have rain in them, it will rain. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. No, what the preacher is saying is the most incredibly profound thing. If you take into account how we, at least most of us, actually live our lives. He's saying, what is, is. Accept it. What happened, happened. What happens, happens. Whether a tree falls this way or that way, there's no point in wishing it fell the other way. There's no point in thinking, what if I cut it at a different angle so that it fell this way or that? Or dwelling on the what-ifs of the results of, oh, if it fell this other way, then I'd be able to hang out over here. There's no point. What happened, happened. But see, the truth is, most of us 
we drift, we tend to drift toward either regret about the past or worry about the future. A lot of times, honestly, both. If we peel back the layers of that and we look at what's underneath, we see that in our regrets and in our worries, we're trying to avoid, or we actually are avoiding, the one thing, the one place in which we live, which is the present. We're so focused on the future, so drawn to the past, that we're zoned out to the lives that we're living right now. The reality of the present is what the second part is about. Regrets won't and can't change where you are in life right now. And anxiety won't and can't add even a single hour to your life, Matthew 6. See, what he's saying is, look at what is around you and accept it. That tree, it could have fallen to the south or the north, but there's no point in even worrying about it. It fell, move on. All we truly have is right now. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? That's your portion. The future is unknown to you, and the past is gated off to you. God's not going to change your past, and he's not going to give you the reins to your future. Go back to the beginning of verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. This is the same point, but I want to break it down a little bit. You need to look with your eyes and see things for what they actually are. If the clouds are dark with rain, there's no point in wishing that it's not going to rain. You just have to prepare yourself for the rain. It it reminds me of something that happened that I knew I was going to use for a sermon one day. And now today is the day. Years ago, I was going to take my daughter to vacation Bible school at a different church. Okay. Cause we don't have it here. And, uh, it looked like it was going to rain outside. And, uh, I, I was already like on my way. We're kind of like running late a little bit, um, which is uh, rare for me. Um, but, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to get there. Um, and Christine says, I think it's going to rain. Like look outside. And I look outside. It's all gray, right? The sky is gray. I look at my phone and it says like 90% chance of rain in like two minutes. And Christine said, there's an umbrella. Why don't you grab a jacket? You know, I said, no, no, I don't have time for that. We'll just make it. Okay. I'll just get there and it'll be fine. Right. So I drive there and it doesn't rain. Right. So I guess I have, you know, like if you need me to tell you about the future, I could no, but it doesn't rain. I pull into a parking spot and literally the second I put my car in park and I put it fully in park this time and I turn off the car. A thunder, like lightning flashed and then thunder like clapped right after. So it was close. And then it just started pouring. It didn't even like gradually ramp up. It just started pouring on us. And I was like, why didn't I grab the umbrella? Like I thought I would just make it. I'm like, we're just going to walk fast. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to wait, wait it out. Um, and time is ticking and we're going to be late. And my daughter's like, dad, we got to go inside. I'm like, how are we going to go inside? It's pouring. So I think there was like an old cardboard box in our trunk and I put it over her head. And I just walked in the rain. So I remember I I was soaked. Her shoes were soaked. And I thought to myself, I'm going to preach on this one day. Some of you are judging my parenting right now. You're judging my foolishness. And you know what? That's the point. I'm not not beyond self-deprecation. It is foolish. It's so dumb. Like Christine told me to get the umbrella. I don't know what I was thinking. It was just wishful thinking. I just wanted, I don't know. I was in a rush. Who knows what I was doing? And yet I think... Perhaps we all do this in our own ways. Maybe not as dumb as me. But I think a lot of us, we refuse to embrace what is so that we can make the best of it because 
We're too caught up in what we wish was or wasn't the case. You know what I mean? Regret about the past and worry about the future are the Scylla and Charybdis on the journey of our lives. They are the dangers that keep us from taking advantage of the moments we are given. I see this all the time. I see it in basketball. I like watching basketball sometimes. Um, and I see it in the best players in the world. They're, they're driving to the hoop and they don't score because they feel like someone fouled them. And instead of getting back on defense, what do they do? They start yelling at the ref. Say, I got fouled. Why didn't you blow the whistle? They're so caught up in what didn't happen, what they thought should have happened. They're yelling at the ref. Meanwhile, the game is still playing. Their teammates are down a guy, and the other team scores because they don't have enough defenders. It's the exact same thing. In arguing for what they wish was the case, what they thought should be the case, they drop the ball, pun intended, on what is the case, the game. You can't control that. You can only control, you can only control right now. And this is what verse 4 emphasizes. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. There's a way to read this out of context and a way to read it in context. Okay, so out of context, you might think that this is good. This is wisdom. You look at the way the wind is blowing, and then you make an educated decision based on that. If it's really windy outside, don't sow because the seed's just going to blow all over the place. It's probably going to blow on the on the hard ground and, and the thorny soil, whatever it might be. But the preacher also says, he who regards the clouds will not reap. What does that mean? He who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, this sowing and uh, reaping metaphor will carry us through the rest of the passage. It's a common one in the Bible. And I've said before, even in this series, that east of Eden, sowing and reaping have their limits. The race does not always go to the swift. You can work hard and it might not lead to riches for you. You can be the smartest person. You might not get recognition for it. You can sow your heart out and you still might not reap what you think or even what you feel like you deserve. But sowing and reaping is still a principle that's woven into the fabric of this creation. You definitely will not reap if you do not sow. I'm going to say that again. You will not reap if you do not sow. That's how God designed the world. You have to reap if you want to sow. Now, reaping doesn't guarantee all, uh, sowing doesn't guarantee all the reaping you want. No, but you still got to do it. You will not reap if you do not sow and you will not reap if you do not reap. Listen to what I'm saying. You will not reap if you do not reap. If you want a harvest, you actually have to get out there and get it. This is what the preacher is saying. He's talking about the person who is waiting for ideal conditions in order to get started. See, here's the thing. Sowing and reaping, they were not necessarily weather-dependent activities. They were seasonal activities. Okay, you have to do them during a certain time of the year, in other words. So maybe it is a little too hot for you today, but if you wait for the perfect temperature, the season might pass you by and then it's too late. If it's a hurricane, you can't sow. If it's a monsoon, you can't reap. But it's not talking about extreme weather here. A little wind, a little rain. Oh man, I looked outside. It's a little too cold. I don't think I can reap today. There is a a time for these things that you need to honor. You need it to sow in season, fall, fall for them in those days so that you could reap in season late spring, early summer. If you're always waiting, for the perfect time, that is the time that is not now, then you're always going to be waiting. You're going to be wasting a lot of your life not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You might not sow enough. You might even miss the season entirely. See, 
The thing is, when we don't embrace what is, when we veer off into the scylla of regret or the charybdis of worry, we take ourselves out of the moment and we fail to live our lives as they're playing out. Does this make sense? I know I'm repeating myself. But think about how this plays out in our lives in small ways. This is us sitting with our kids at the table and sharing with us their thoughts about life and bugs or whatever they talk about and crayons and Minecraft and we're saying, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And we're not there. We might even be doing something that we can justify as being for our kids down the road. We're worrying about our finances. How am I going to afford college for my kids? Or we're looking up an article on how to do family worship. That's the future. This is right now. You're tuning out your kids right now. You're worrying about politics, worrying about uh, all these things that might have an effect downstream, but still, this is the moment that you have. And there's nothing wrong with planning. We sow and we reap, but you see the problem. You're so focused on the future that you're missing out on the present. This is the time that you have right now to be faithful, not the future. Or maybe we put off family time or family worship or whatever because you feel convicted or whatever you feel convicted to do because it's just too busy today, right? I can't do it, right? I'll wait till tomorrow when I'm more hydrated or I slept better or when my kids aren't having a meltdown or whatever it might be. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Do it tomorrow too. I'm not saying don't do it tomorrow, but I'm saying, what are you going to do right now? Tomorrow is the day that we think we can do everything, And it's the day when I can get all my to-do lists done. No, that's not how it works. The tree fell. So what are you going to do? What can you do to make the most of your time instead of always punting it toward a later ideal time? Because there's never going to be an ideal time. Or maybe your kids are older. They don't listen the same. They don't want to talk to you. They might be out of the house. And when you talk to them, all you can think about is, ah, man, I wish I could just go back in time and parent them better, or I, I talk to them more. And that's what we focus on, the past. You can't change the past, unfortunately. I wish we could. Oftentimes, I wish I could change the past. But see, the irony is, and this is the path of wisdom, the irony is when we regret, we're missing out on the time we have right now to move toward our kids. You know, the regret isn't going to change anything, but the present could. So take advantage of the present. Scylla and Charybdis kill a bunch of people. If you want to seize the day, here's what the second point teaches us. You need to seize the day. If you want to seize the day, you need to seize today. And this is what Horace's poem actually says. A lot of people haven't read it before. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, and it's in Latin. But here's a translation of the final two lines. Listen to this. Be wise, strain the wine and cut back long hope into a small space. While we talk, envious time will have fled, pluck the day or seize the day, trusting as little as possible to the future. Seize the day. Take hold of this moment. Wring every last drop out of it. If life gives you lemonade or lemons, excuse me, I'm sorry for you, but don't wish it were different. Instead, make lemonade. It's a cliche, but this is how we need to live if we're going to actually live our lives. Embrace what is so that you can be faithful with your portion. Last point. Do what you can and don't worry about what you can't. Do what you can and don't worry about what you can't. Verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
Life is a mysterious thing. People call it a miracle. How a spirit joins the flesh and bones of a body. Even with our technology today, we have ultrasounds and all these things. It's beyond our full comprehension how life really just blooms and develops. There are things we can't fully understand. And there are definitely things that I can't explain. I have no idea how an ultrasound machine works. In fact, it reminds me of my friend. He's telling me a story. I'm just going to paraphrase. I don't remember the, the exact details. But he was saying, you know, we think if we went back in time that we would be like superhuman to those prehistoric people, right? We'd have technology. We're so advanced. And then he saw like a TV show or a video on YouTube about this, this very concept where a guy goes back in time at like thousands of years and he has an iPhone. Okay. And he's like, wow, I have the greatest technology in the world. I'm going to blow them away with how advanced we've come. You know, human, human beings. I, I am a human, you know, like I, I'm from the future. So then he wants to show them some stuff on the phone and there's no internet. Right? Because there hasn't been invented yet. There's no like websites to go to to show them. There's no reception. And he can show them some pictures that he's taken, which is cool. But then his phone runs out of batteries. He doesn't know how to harness the power of electricity. He doesn't know how to make a battery. He doesn't know how to make a plug. There's nowhere to plug it into anyways. He didn't understand the iPhone at all in reality. And then in the same way, we don't even understand this thing, these things that we see and that we use every day. We don't understand the things that we take for granted. So how can we understand the ways of God, in other words? What makes us think that we could digest and assimilate his plan for all of time and all of eternity if he were to tell us, what makes, me th- what makes us think that we could do better than him? That we could tell him, you should have done this instead of that. I mean, this is what God tells Job. And if you think Ecclesiastes is a crazy book, read Job sometimes. Job was the most righteous person on earth. Job, the man who was afflicted by Satan for his righteousness. The story of Job is very interesting. God allowed Satan to take everything from Job. His children were, all of his children were killed in a freak accident. All of them, his possessions were stolen. His health failed him as he developed painful sores all over his body. His wife turned on him and said, curse God and die. His friends grew frustrated with him. Just admitted, Job, you must have sinned. You must be a secret wretch inside. Why else would God let this happen to you? And Job tries to hold on. He tries to hold on to his faith and he mostly does, but he stumbles in one way. He believes that if he could only just hear the reason from God, that he would be satisfied. It's fine. I trust God, he says. I do trust him, but I want to know why. Why did this happen to me? If he could just explain it to me, if he could exonerate me and just tell you guys that I'm actually innocent and that there must be another explanation, then I'll be satisfied with that because I don't think I've done anything that would deserve this if I thought that I would repent. And at the end of the book, God actually does appear to Job. And we as the readers, we know what happened. We know about Satan and God's conversation in heaven. But God appears to Job in the whirlwind, and he doesn't explain. It's a very interesting ending. God does not explain at all. He doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't talk about how there is evil personified in this world. He doesn't talk about theodicy or even theology, really, with him. And he definitely doesn't justify himself or try to explain, hey, listen, right, I I know it was hard for you, but let me explain. I have a good reason. He simply starts asking him these questions. 
And they're not the questions you expect at all. Do you know about the snow, Job? Do you know how the snow forms? What about how large the sea is? Have you ever tried to measure it out? How about the ostrich? Job's probably like, what? How about the ostrich or the mountain goat? Can you tell me about them? Do you know uh, their life cycle? Do you know how long the gestation period is? Could you explain their behavior? You can't. And the point is, Job, you can't even explain what you see. So how could you even possibly understand what you can't? You can't explain what you see, so how could you possibly understand what you can't see? And to his credit, Job accepts this. Job 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have, hud- uh, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak and I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what God said. I had heard of you, Job says, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is a wisdom book. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book and Proverbs is a wisdom book. And what Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And this ties all these books together. And we might argue about what fear means. Some people want to say, well, it can't be truly fear, right? Because God is our father. It's just a reverence or an awe. We'll get there at the end of Ecclesiastes. But for now, understand this. The fear of the Lord is about internalizing that God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. There are so many things that are beyond us. So many things we can never understand. So many things we could not possibly hope to control. And yet, even though we are so small, unlike Job, we don't really despise ourselves. And please hear me. I'm not saying that you should hate yourself or anything like that. All I'm saying is, relatively, so often we think that we can tell God what to do. We think that we know better than God. We think that if he just listened to our advice, that the world would be better. No matter how sophisticated we get, how learned, how much our technology develops, that will never be the case. That will never be the case. And that's okay. Verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Ecclesiastes is known to be a difficult book. Some call it a depressing book, or even a dangerous book. But when you actually read it, Ecclesiastes is a surprisingly positive book. He tells us to sow in the morning, to get up early, to not... Waste the time we have. And then in the evening, don't relax. Keep it up to push it. And this is a metaphor for our entire lives. Keep your foot on the gas pedal. When you're young, push it. And when you're old, keep going. Life is meant to be lived. So do what your hands find to do, Ecclesiastes 9. And we already touched on that. But look at the reason here in our text. In Ecclesiastes 11.6, he says, For you do not know... And we don't know. There's so much we don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know the ways of God. But he says, you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Are you paying attention to what he's saying? He says, do stuff, work hard, try things, go for broke, embrace what is, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And then he says, you don't know if it's going to be success or failure, or maybe It'll be 
double success. You don't know what things will take off, what things will work. Maybe this will work or that will work. But here, maybe both will work. And that's how he ends this little section. It's not cynical. It's super positive. And that, my friends, is the grace of God. If you've been with us on this journey, if you made it this far, if your eyes haven't glazed over yet, this is the preacher who said everything was vanity. This is the one who said, I hated life when I looked at everything under the sun. But he says here, look, sow your seed in the morning. Push yourself at night. Live your life from beginning to end all out. And some things are going to be good. Not everything's going to work out, but some things will. And maybe a lot more than you think. Maybe a lot more than you think. Labor, and your labor will not be in vain. This isn't cynicism at all, because the preacher knows that while the days are evil, and there's so much we don't know, there's one thing we do, that God is good. That there is a creator who stands behind the creation. That there is something that is above the sun. And that if we sow in the design of God, there is a reaping. There always is. And this isn't about just work and money and financial investments. This is about everything. So when it comes to relationships, not every single friendship is going to work out. Some will cause heartbreak and heartache. Some will crash and burn. And some of us, we think we can know beforehand. And that paralyzes us. Oh, man, I don't really jive with these people. Uh, these people are so different than me. That person, I could just tell we're not going to get along. There's not going to be anything deep there. And we don't even try. We don't sow. So when it comes to the gospel, we do this all the time when it comes to evangelism. There's like a fly here, man. But just kind of make, it is what it is, right? So when it comes to evangelism, so many people, and I've said it myself, this person will never become a Christian. They're too hardened. I know they're just going to reject it. So I don't even try. I don't even try. You don't know what's going to happen. You can't know that. What God has given you to do is to not decide who will become a Christian or not. It's to preach the gospel. So sow the seed of the good news of Jesus Christ and God will turn hearts as he does. Maybe this person, maybe that person, maybe both, maybe both. Second Corinthians nine, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So because you don't know. Do you hear that? So because you don't know. And maybe you're thinking, how can I know that God is good enough? I'm a pessimist by nature. You're an optimist. I can tell. I'm not really an optimist, but let's run with it. Turn me to Romans 8, and then we'll close this. Romans chapter 8. We do not know the work of God. It's true. Actually, the the truth is we can't know God at all, not by our own faculties. This is what the doctrine of revelation is. Not the book of Revelation that talks about the end times. The doctrine of revelation. See, what the Bible says is that God reveals himself to us. That's the only way we can know him. He reveals himself to us in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. He reveals himself to us in scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. It's his very breath. And he reveals himself to us most personally in his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we can know God. Now listen to this in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know, we know, so many things we don't know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We can't know the work of God, but we can know this, that he works all things for the good of those who love him to those who have been called according to his purpose, who have been foreknown and predestined and justified because of Jesus Christ. All we have is today, but for God who dwells in eternity, outside of time every day, is today. And before the foundation of the world, God enacted a plan to send his son to live the perfect life we can never live. And for the joy set before him to die a cruel death on a cross, nails driven into his hands and feet, a crown of thorns on his head, condemned as a criminal so that we could be declared righteous, bearing the very wrath of God so that we could be pardoned, pouring out his life so that we could live even though we die. There is so much that we don't know, but because of Jesus Christ, we know this. And we can quote with Leslie Newbigin, the missionary, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's not about wishful thinking. It's not about your personality. It's about the truth and it's about faith in the truth. God will work everything for good as surely as Jesus Christ died for our sins, even our mistakes. God will work everything for good. Even the things you can't or don't and never will understand, God will work everything for good because he is good. So do what you can. Live your life one day at a time with boldness and freedom and joy. In other words, seize the day. We'll close here. The most famous scene of all scenes in Dead Poets Society comes at the end. And you might remember it. It's the O Captain, My Captain scene. I'm not going to explain the whole thing for our purposes. We don't need to know what happens. But what happened was one of the students, one of the students... Um, who really was inspired by Mr. Keating. Okay. He, he really ran with the carpe diem idea. His, his father was very strict, wanted him to be a success in the world, but he wanted to be an actor. So he, he turned from his father. He said, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And he secretly started acting, uh, without his father's knowledge. When his father finds out, he shuts him down. He reprimands him. Uh, I think he plans to pull him out of school and with, uh, his dreams dashed, his son, this young man ends up taking his life. It's a very serious thing. This leads to the firing of Mr. Keating. And all the students who were part of the Dead Poets Society, all the people who followed his philosophy of seizing the day to live out carpe diem were shaken by this. And as English literature students and majors do, I was reading analysis of this movie. Okay, I just wanted to, I was just wondering what people thought about it. And I was trying to, to understand, okay, what is the film trying to get across here? Right? The whole thing is about seizing the day, but it seems to lead to something bad. Okay, Carpe Diem seems to lead to a dead end. Is Carpe Diem foolishness? Is that the message? The student, Neil, the actor who ended up taking his life, what was wrong with that? Why, why, why did it happen? What, what are we supposed to take away? And what I was reading was, Neil tragically misinterpreted carpe diem he had interpreted or or viewed it as live life to the fullest and if you can't there's no point in living follow your dreams and if they don't come true there's no point in living reach for the stars but if you don't make it there's no point in living but that's not the message of the film 
And that's not the message more importantly, far more importantly, of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 11 isn't about your dreams. Because as Ecclesiastes has shown already, your dreams might not come true. Life is hard east of Eden, under the sun. And even if they do, the preacher has said, all my dreams came true, and I was still miserable. This isn't about getting more stuff, finding more pleasures, taking risks for the sake of great financial gain. This isn't about making more money or worldly blessing or how hard work is its own reward. It's not about that. This is about living life to the fullest because this life is a gift. See, when you don't give your best to your life, it's forsaking the gift and it's forsaking the giver. This is about living in light of the one reality that is certain, that God is real and God is God. And this is the day that he has made. And we're not God. This is about living today because today is the only day we've got. So as it stands, Ecclesiastes 11 is telling us, this is your life. Seize it. Seize the opportunities presented to do what's right and what's faithful and what's wise with what you have, forgetting what lies behind, not worrying about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Speak words that build up, preach the gospel, anchor yourself in this moment, fear God, give freely of your stuff, because your whole life is playing with house money. So push it, sow and reap, cast your bread upon the water. There's only so much life to live, and it goes by fast. So seize it. Let's pray. God, I pray that the message of Ecclesiastes would not fall on deaf ears or on hardened hearts for us. Even as the preacher of Ecclesiastes sows the word into our hearts, God, I pray that you would cause it to take root and bear fruit in us, that you would lead us away from foolishness and toward wisdom, that you would lead us away from the things that are vanity to to true joy in Christ. God, I pray that you would lead us away from a life that is wasted, to a life that is well-lived, for your glory, for our good, even for our joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.